I wonder if you've ever met someone who you thought was uh, extremely and perhaps unreasonably happy or joyful. Perhaps a, a person going through something uh, that you thought was seemingly terrible and difficult and yet they seem to have this wonderful sort of joy-filled peace that they could still walk into a room and still be full of joy. Of course, if you've been around our church for a while, uh, no doubt the same person springs to your mind as springs to mine in our dearly departed sister Fiona uh, and g'day to the Rao family if you're watching today. Uh, of course, in the midst of her uh, terrible suffering with cancer and its very real sadness, she did have this deep and abiding joy. And when we meet people like that, we often uh, are struck and wonder how, how can it be? How can it be that when life is difficult and tough, uh, some people seem to have a deep well of joy from which to draw upon? And uh, I think what we see today as we uh, look at this reading from Romans is that the gospel is that well of joy. And that is the gospel uh, that if we uh, truly understand all that God has done for us and the love that he has demonstrated to us, we're able to become this, these people who, in spite of our sufferings, have a deep and wonderful joy. So uh, let me pray for us and then we can dive in uh, and have a look at this reading from the first part of Romans chapter 5. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for your word that speaks powerfully to us. Thank you for those examples like Fiona who have gone before us and uh, inspired us with their joy in suffering. Lord, we pray that as we reflect on your word today, uh, that you would help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear, that your Holy Spirit would convict us and empower us to live joy-filled lives because of all that you've done for us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul begins, uh, having, you'll remember in chapter 4, talked all about faith. Uh, and so he says then, uh, moving on from the, 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 the story of Abraham that proves that God has always been about giving the gift of righteousness or making us justified through faith by, by stating that. Therefore, verse 1, since we have been justified through faith, uh, which we know to be the truth from the Old Testament and the New, uh, demonstrated with the, the Abraham, the father of, uh, of, of all who have faith. Because we have faith, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. Remember, Romans up to this point has been all about how, because of our sin, we don't have peace, rather we, we have wrath. That, 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 that without Christ... Our relationship with God is not one of peace at all, but one of wrath. And we get this through Jesus, through trusting what he has done on the cross, that he uh, is, uh, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the propitiation, that he is the one who takes the wrath of God uh, and in doing so allows us to stand in the, in, in the peace of God. And this is a gift Right? We don't earn it. That's the point of, of the justification coming through faith. Verse 2, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We stand in God's grace. 
not in our works. And so our boast uh, as a Christian person is not, well, look at me, I'm a minister. Look at me, I've been going to church all my life. Look at me, I'm such a good person. Look at me, I give all this money away. No, our boast is in God. And look at me, horrible sinner whom God in his love has had mercy upon. And so we can boast in the hope of the glory of God. But I wonder what the character of that, that hope is. Hope is such a, a, an interesting word because when it turns up in the Bible, it has such a different meaning to when it turns up in our minds. If I asked you at the moment, what is it that you're hoping in? I wonder what you'd say. I was thinking about our uh, brethren in Victoria at the moment who have just entered six weeks of, you know, strict lockdown because of COVID-19 and thinking about what their hopes might have been a couple of weeks ago and how they've been dashed by this lockdown and what their hopes might be now that the virus would, 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 would be suppressed by this so that they can move out of lockdown. But of course, they've got no idea really and, and, and before the lockdown happened, their, their hopes w- were just wishful thinking, weren't they? And, that, and that's often what we mean when we, when we say hope. We say, oh, I hope I win the lottery. Or, oh, oh I, I hope my leg doesn't get broken when I jump off this cliff. It, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a statement of, of wishful thinking. But when the Bible talks about hope, like it does here in verse 2, it's talking about a totally different idea altogether. It's actually talking about something that is sure and certain. When Paul says we boast in the hope of the glory of God, we do so knowing all that God has already done and all that God has promised to do that, that will occur. We boast in the hope of the glory of God because we know that God is the God who He says He is and He will do the things He says He will do. The Old Testament is full of stories pointing to what God is going to do in Jesus Christ. And then uh, God does that work in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we can find peace with God. And we know that God will return and judge the living and the dead and that if we're in Christ, we will be joined with him in glory forever. If we believe that Jesus really did live and really did die and really did rise again, then we can know for certain he's really going to come back. We don't just believe that bit and not be certain about the future. No, we have a hope. This is going to happen one day. It's true. We see the evidence of this glory, we see the fruit of our salvation and we can know with certainty that God is a good God who will do the things that he says. But our hope is not in us, is it? It's not our ability to get there, it's all in in him and his character and his faithfulness. 
Now, assuming you're, you're, you've just discovered that through faith in Jesus Christ you can have peace with God and you've got this hope of, of eternal glory with Him to look forward to, what's your life in the here and now meant to look like? It might be tempting to think that life in the here and now was supposed to look good, easy, blessed. But peace with God and a certain and sure hope doesn't mean an easy life at all. Paul goes on to uh, explain as much in the next verse, verses 3 and 4. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. When we come to Christ, the suffering servant, the one who goes to the cross for our salvation and for his glorification, then it makes sense, doesn't it, that we too as people of the cross will find a life of suffering in this world. It can be a little bit counterintuitive uh, to our minds at first, but it, it makes sense when you think, well, if life is about following Jesus, then perhaps our lives are going to take on something of the character of Jesus. And his life was a life of suffering. It's tempting to, to believe the lie that if, we, if we've made peace with God, the creator of the world, then, then he will just keep giving us good things. And we won't have any pain or or, or, or disappointments, sadness. But no, we still live in a broken world. We still in, live in a world that is under the wrath of God. And we will suffer just as Christ suffered. But the Christian is able to suffer with a different attitude. Because we know the fruit of suffering, glory. We know that suffering will transform us, will grow our character and ultimately will grow our hope because as we endure sufferings, we have Jesus who's already endured his sufferings and received his glory and we know glory awaits us. That's why suffering leads to hope. And hope does not put us to shame, Paul says in verse 5, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, when it comes to the Christian life and the Christian faith, when we, when we believe uh, and trust that God is who he says he is, that God has sent his son to die for us, when we receive the gift of justification... It's not just the legal transaction that happens where we go from unrighteous to righteous. God also pours into our hearts His Holy Spirit. That is, there's both a, a, a true thing that is happening and God in His grace giving us the experience of salvation through the Holy Spirit dwelling in our heart. 
The Christian life is not just something we experience intellectually in our minds, but something that also we experience deeply in our hearts by the Spirit who comes to all whom God justifies, whom God uh, uh, allows to put their faith in Christ. Now this can be a new idea for some, but that, that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit and that allows us to enter into relationship with him, to, to have his love in our hearts. But this is, is, is a true thing. And I want to think a little bit today about how, how does this actually work in practice? What does it mean for the Holy Spirit to be poured out into our hearts? Because it, it can be very easy to just give a, a, a simple and academic answer. Like, well, that just means that you know God loves you. And that's partly true, I think. But I think it also does mean that uh, the Christian ought to expect from time to time to have deep experiences of, of the love of God, knowing it the way you know someone dear to you loves you. You know, you don't, well, I don't just know Elise loves me because like I, I kind of get it up here so we have transactional relationships of love. No, sometimes I actually just and blown away by her love for me in this deep kind of uh, way that we have a relationship. And I think the same kind of thing does happen for Christians now and again. Let me tell you about a couple of times that this has happened for me. Uh, shortly after coming to faith, uh, as I was sitting in church one Sunday night, uh, I remember having a deep experience of the love of God. That, that is... Uh, I, I, I discovered on this camp when I was 16 that God had died for me, uh, sent his son to die for me and I was blown away by that. But then a few months later, as I was struggling to really believe if it was true, I just had this experience where I, I just knew God loved me. That it was, it was sort of like a, an emotional connection to this beautiful idea that I discovered was true. And I can remember it clearly. I can remember where I was sitting in, in what church I was sitting in. And then a few years later, I sort of had my first serious relationship with a girl uh, and it ended. I got dumped and I took it. I didn't take it well, it's fair to say. And uh, part of why I didn't take it well is because I felt like it, it meant that I was unlovable. And I can, again, remember very clearly sitting on the steps of my home uh, in Sandy Bay, bawling my eyes out like a little baby uh, because I was so unlovable uh, and having this overwhelming sense in the spirit that I was loved by God. And it was, it was, it was profound. I used to refer to it as almost like a second conversion. Now, if you haven't had an experience like that, I'm not saying your, your faith is less real. But what I, what I am saying is that the Christian life 
is not one that is just lived in, in our heads and in ritual, but it is lived in our hearts by the Spirit. And sometimes that leads to real and deep emotional experience. But Paul says, and I want to say, that that's not what you base it all on. You see, I've had those two experiences and they fade in and out of memory and I can't, sometimes I can't quite remember, Did I, have I kind of overplayed what that was? And so I can't solely rely on experiences and it's been a while since I've had a deep kind of experience like that. So, what does that mean? Well, I can't solely rely on those experiences and Paul immediately uh, goes from talking about experience in verse 5 to truth. How do you know God loves you? Not just because the Holy Spirit lives in your heart but because of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, verses 6 to 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The experience thing is real, but how do you really know? You know because God sent His only Son into the world to die for you when He was mad at you for your sin. He loved you so much, He didn't want you to experience that, so He sent His one and only Son to go in your place. That is love. Objectively true love. God loves you. We've spent weeks and weeks and weeks talking about how he's angry and it's a fruit of his love uh, that, that, that he, he's like the spurned lover. He loves us, we've rejected him and so he's now angry at sin but his love overcomes that and he sends his son to die for you and for me. Back in, verse, uh, back in chapter 23, the cross we saw was a demonstration of the justice of God. Chapter 3, verse 25. Here we see it's a demonstration of love too. Justice in dealing with His wrath, motivated by love. Let me read to you from uh, uh, the eminently smarter than me, uh, now deceased scholar John Stott. How can we doubt the love of God, he says. To be, sure, to be sure, we are often profoundly perplexed by the tragedies and calamities of life. Indeed, Paul has been giving his teaching about God's love within the context of tribulation, which can be very painful. But then we remember that God has both proved his love for us in the death of his son, verse 8, and poured His love into us by the gift of His Spirit, verse 5. Objectively in history and subjectively in experience, God has given us good grounds for believing in His love. The integration of the historical ministry of God's Son on the cross with the contemporary ministry, that is the ministry now, of His Spirit in our hearts 
is one of the most wholesome and satisfying features of the gospel. You can know God's love objectively and truly in the past and you can experience it by His Spirit in the here and now. The gospel is not just a story about something that happened that you need to mentally assent to. It's a story about something that happened because God loves you now and He wants to, uh, you to experience that love as you assent to that truth and He gives you the gift of His Spirit so you can experience His love in the here and now. So, we have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We stand in grace. This is a gift from a loving God. We hope in glory that, 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 uh, that in, in the future we will, we will experience this love in all its fullness forever. Well, Paul finishes our section today again talking about that future glory, the, 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 the future salvation. Verses 9 and 10. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Now, this, these verses might seem a little strange to you if you've been, you've been following the train of thought. Because uh, uh, if we've been justified and reconciled, how is it that we still need to be saved? Uh, and if we've seen that Jesus' death saves us from the wrath of God, what is actually Paul talking about here, that, that, that we, we, we can know that we shall be saved from God's wrath and, and that we can know that we shall be saved through his life? Well, I think Paul here is is introducing us to, to, to the idea that we know to be true from experience, that, that our salvation is not fully realised. We are saved and we will be saved. It's one of the conundrums of, of, of Christianity and one of the reasons why I think it's true. It's because God is working out His salvation plan on His time and we get, we get it now and we get it in the future. A human being doesn't make up stuff like that. We make it more ordered. But God is much bigger than we are. There is more to come. There will be a day of judgment when the wrath of God will be revealed. Paul's talked about that already. And on that day, those of us who are now saved, who have had God's love poured in our hearts by the Holy Spirit and have believed in faith that Jesus rose from the dead and have been justified by that grace, on that day, we will be saved. Likewise, though we begin a new life when we put our faith in Christ, on that day, it'll be revealed in all its fullness. We'll, we'll, we'll fully realise the, the resurrection life that Christ is already living. For now, we live partially there, yet in a world still, and a body still afflicted by sin. So we have been justified, we have been reconciled, we do know God's love. 
And so we can be confident that in the final day, we will, we will receive our full and final salvation for eternity. And that's, that's where our hope lies. That's what we look forward to. And so, given this gift of faith, given the, this gift of uh, God's love by His Spirit, given our knowledge of it uh, from the past in God sending His Son to die for us, given that we were God's enemies but He's made us His friends through the death of Christ, what is God calling us to? Verse 11, not only is this so, that we'll be saved at the end, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We're called to, here it says, this boasting in God through Jesus Christ, but more, more accurately I think that might say to, to, to rejoicing or exalting God. Uh, through marvelling at the gift that God has given us, uh, through rejoicing, through being people of joy. Again, to quote John Stott, he says, as Christians, we ought to be the most positive people in the world. For the new community of Jesus Christ is characterised not by a self-centred triumphalism, but by a God-centred worship a God-centred worship which produces overflowing joy. How can it not? How can it not? God has poured His love into your heart by His Spirit. He sent His Son to die for you. You were dead in your sins and the wrath of God was upon you and now you're free from that burden. How can you not be overjoyed? So my question for you today is does joy characterise your life? Because when we spend time with this God who loves us, when we allow His Spirit to continue to work in our hearts, when we remind ourselves of all He's done for us, when we remember what He's promised for us, when we focus on Him first, we will have deep joy even in the struggles of day-to-day life and the sufferings that come upon us because of our hope. And by joy, we don't mean glib happiness, do we? We mean this deep and abiding joy that can be there through difficult times. A joy that comes supernaturally to our hearts and shapes our understanding. And I really think this is a good message for our world today because, I don't know, it kind of feels like to me we live in a very joyless world and uh, people seem to be afflicted by all sorts of, of things and they seem to do all sorts of things to try and overcome their, their, their sadness at, at the world and the effects of sin on their, in their life. They try and look for cheap joy in money or sex or power or family or whatever particular idol it might be. But of course, they never quench their thirst. They are cheap joys. 
that run out. They are not deep wells like the love of God. So, I wonder where you're looking for joy. And let me encourage you today not to run to those cheap substitutes for a quick fix, but to come to Jesus and experience the deep and lasting joy of peace with God, of his love poured into your hearts by his Spirit. And when you do that, do everything in your power to flee from anything that looks to steal your joy. As I was reflecting on this passage today, I thought to myself, you know, I have met too many joyless Christians. People who, in their suffering, have not allowed it to produce character and perseverance and hope, but have allowed it to produce anger and malice and bitterness and rage. People who in their sufferings have felt wronged by something, rightly so. They've felt uh, deeply uh, offended or uh, had a great injustice done upon them and they've allowed all of that to colour their life going forward. And in some sense I get it. But the words of the gospel come even to the, 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 the saddest of situations, the deepest of wrongs, the hardest of hearts. The love of God is yours if you trust in Christ through faith. Let's be joy-filled Christians. Let's run away from those things that might cause us to be hard of heart and instead continually ask God by His Spirit to fill our hearts with love and joy and that we might be a people of love and joy so that our world, which so desperately longs for joy, might find the deep well of Jesus because nothing will be more transformative for our world and our society than that. Mm -hmm.